Welcome back to Hints and Guesses, my podcast. This is Kent Dobson. Oh, I'm so excited today because I will be bringing you an interview with Bill Plotkin. Bill Plotkin is a uh, hmm, uh, an eco depth psychologist and author and wilderness guide and more. And um, he founded a place called Animus Valley Institute in Colorado. You can check them out online. They offer all kinds of programs, nature-based programs, psycho-spiritual programs, rooted in growing up. That's the, the simplest way to say it. That's the way I like to say it. And um, I have been a part of Animus taking their programs and in their guide training program for a number of years now, and also um, a student of, of Bill Plotkin. So he's been, for me, a mentor, a teacher, a guide. And I'm really just grateful that he would come on the podcast and talk about his new book called The Journey of Soul Initiation. Um, and maybe I should say, here's something maybe to listen for in the interview. The Journey of Soul Initiation is the larger um, process of becoming an adult, according to Bill Plotkin's maps. And um, within that, you have something specific, which he calls the descent to soul. So part of growing into uh, a mature and healthy adult is the descent to soul. And that's really what this book is about. The Journey of Soul Initiation is about the descent to soul and the five phases that are, um, that are a part of that journey. So we talk about those phases, plus a bunch of other interesting things. So again, really grateful that he would come on the podcast. I hope you'll find something that is intriguing, uh, alarming, because some of what he's saying is actually kind of disturbing. <laughs> um, so intriguing, alarming, uh, alluring, something like that, a hint, a guess, a clue for your own path. And again, if, if something you hear uh, strikes a chord, I encourage you to, to get the book. Um, it's really the kind of book that you can sit with and read slowly and chew on. It's quite long, uh, but it's filled with fantastic stories. Um, and I think, yeah, so maybe that's all I want to say about that. Um, a couple advertisements. Uh, first of all, this is fitting for the conversation that we're having because I am offering, as I have the last couple years, a Lent Descent online course. And it's six weeks. We meet online in a small group. There are a couple of spots left. And, um, I use the, the book of Jonah as a kind of spine, as a backdrop, the image of setting off somewhere, um, being thrown overboard, sinking, descending, being swallowed and spit out on a new shore as a map for um, transformation and change. And it's not only, a, not only do I think it applies to personal change, but I think it applies to a larger pattern, a transpersonal pattern of change. And we're certainly in that kind of time where we've been thrown overboard of how we thought um, modern life is supposed to go with the pandemic and with the election and, and all the, the madness that has been a part of our, our world lately. It feels like we've been thrown overboard, we could say. So anyway, um, I have found this class to be really rewarding personally, and so have others who have participated in the past. So if that interests you, go to my website, kentopson.com. It's right on the main page. Click on the link, fill out the little questionnaire, and uh, questionnaire slash application, and it will uh, send me an email and we'll get you signed up for the class. It's it's quite affordable, in my opinion. It's 200 bucks for six weeks, and if you can't be there every week, that is okay. 
each session will be recorded with everyone's um, permission and only to be shared among those in the class, of course. So if you miss a session, that's okay. Um, and for my Patreon supporters, um, half off. So hundred bucks. And that's just a small, very small way I can say thank you to my Patreon supporters, which their ongoing support makes this podcast happen. So I can't thank you enough. So um, one more thing, and that is I have in mind a kind of question and response podcast. Every once in a while I get questions or questions slash ideas. And I think, hmm, this is worth taking up. So I want to do a kind of question response podcast. So send me your questions. I would love it if it was related to something I've talked about in the past, but it's okay if it is not something that I've never even touched, but you think would be interesting. Send me a question. Probably the easiest is to use Facebook. Uh, send me it through Facebook Messenger or Instagram on Instagram Messenger. I'll make sure I, I'll check these things from time to time in the coming weeks. And I'll try to put together a, uh, a list of questions. If you have my email, you can send me an email or you can go through my website and send me a message. So any of those means just get a hold of me and, um, and we'll, we'll try to build a podcast together based on uh, questions that might, might be working you at present. So anyway, um, I think that's all I want to do in terms of advertising. Again, special thanks to Bill Plotkin for coming on the podcast. This is really my first traditional interview. You know, I've had people on before, Ryan Meeks and my friend Paul Moore, and I'm going to have more kind of unscripted conversations coming up. Uh, but this is just like an interview about the book. So it's new territory for me, and I, I felt like I was learning a ton, even though I've I got an advanced copy of the book. I felt like... Just the interview itself was exposing nuances that um, I think are important. So I guess without further ado, let's do it. I have started a new series, which I'm calling The Forum, where I intend to host a series of conversations. And today I'm very excited to welcome Bill Plotkin to the podcast and to The Forum um, because we'd like to have a conversation about his brand new book called The Journey of Soul Initiation, which um, I am in the process of reading and um, really grateful for you, uh, Bill. And I, maybe I'll, I'll maybe do a longer introduction here in a second, but um, I just want to say thanks for coming on the podcast. Uh, you're welcome, Kent, and thank you so much. It's a um, great pleasure, especially given our uh, time together on the trail yeah, uh, of life this last many years. And so, yeah, great pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. Maybe I should say in the interest of full disclosure, um, I have been, I don't, I don't know for how many years, at least five or six years, been involved with Animus Valley Institute as a participant going uh, on, uh, on some of these programs and um, and now as a as a trainee um, in the soul initiation and apprenticeship program, which um, continues to shape and challenge and turn my world upside down and all the good stuff really. Um, and I my audience will be familiar with you, Bill, because I quote from you from time to time. I've done mm -hmm. podcasts about your work. I've done a podcast on mm -hmm. Wild Mind, which is one of my most downloaded podcasts. And um, 
So I don't think um, people will be totally unfamiliar, which is a great, a great thing. Um, I wanted to begin with this kind of question, which is this book, The Journey of Soul Initiation, and, and I might add the larger body of work, which includes Animus Valley Institute programs and your other books um, like Wild Mind and Nature and the Human Soul and Soulcraft, um, the body of work, what problem, or maybe you could speak specifically to the journey of soul initiation, what problem is it trying to address? I think in, in the most general sense, as kind of like a starting place. Yeah. Okay. There's a big topic. Um, it's our work is addressing what we might have to disturbingly call arrested human development or um, yeah, even a nearly universal arrested human development. That's a, a disturbing thing to say and perhaps hear. It's also exciting in some ways because of the opportunities. But, and it's something that probably most people would either reject or at least have never heard before. And maybe your listeners can't have heard something like this before. But it's the um, kind of the fundamental uh, premise of our work is that there has been a kind of cultural decay in most cultures in the world, um, generally called industrialized cultures. Mm -hmm. um, Rianne Eisler in her book, Chalice and the Blade, calls them uh, dominator cultures, and she contrasts dominator cultures from um, healthier cultures that she refers to as partnership cultures mm -hmm. that work on um, a sense of the sacred and reciprocity and partnership with um, all living beings. So um, most cultures today, I think those people who are observing carefully would say are dominator cultures. And although there's been all kinds of uh, progress culturally and societally, um, in these cultures, there's a, a, a very serious problem with um, uh, basic human development. Yeah. And this is off the, the point I'm making and, the, and what we find in uh, the work we do at Animus is uh, off the map of most, uh, well, entirely off the map of mainstream Western psychology. So from a perspective of mainstream psychology, most people develop just fine. Thank you very much. Um, but from my observations and um, as uh, framed in the maps we've developed at Animus, um, it's quite to the contrary that um, the, the map we've developed, I call the eco-soul-centric developmental wheel. It's based on um, nature's cycles. Mm -hmm. And based on uh, that map, um, most people in the world today only get to stage three of eight human stages. And stage three is corresponds to early adolescence, by which I don't mean early teen years, but a psychological state that starts at puberty and doesn't necessarily ever end. And in particular, the um, vast majority of people in uh, most cultures get stuck for the rest of their lives in early adolescence. Um, and 
And so that's a hard one to swallow for a lot of people, because yeah. if you do swallow it, then we have to say, there's relatively few true adults yeah. in the world, okay. and almost no elders. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, yeah, this is disturbing. Um, I remember even when I first started coming into this work, I was saying out loud something very simple, which is, I would like to grow up. I mean, one, one part of me, uh, although I was married, I had kids, I had a job, um, I had a, a name, I had a vocation, I had a reputation. Another part of me felt I was, I guess what you would call in a state of arrested development, psycho-spiritually. And, and even the word initiation really bothered me. I mean, I first started hearing it from, from Richard Rohr and from you. Um, on a, mm -hmm. some tapes or CDs that someone gave me of a conference where the two of you were teaching together a long time yeah. ago. Um, and that word just stuck in my throat. Like, eh. I, it was both a feeling of I'm attracted to this. And is it true that I'm an uninitiated <laughs> adolescent? And the answer to that was something like, yeah. And I'd don't know if I really want to find out uh, too much about this because my life might have to change. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So can you describe what just briefly what you mean by um, early adolescent and maybe immature er early adolescent, a phrase that you use in one of your other books is a pathologically adolescent culture, something like that. What do you mean by this? Um, and what, this process of the, of the journey of soul initiation, how is that um, speaking to this arrested development? Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Um, so early adolescence in my framework, my model, um, is the first time in life we are called upon to consciously construct a social presence because we don't do that in childhood. We, we just experience in childhood, we experience ourselves as um, primarily members of our family. And we're learning a value system from our, our parents and our extended family and our community. Um, and we have to learn a value system, a way of life, um, a way of being human uh, in order to ever become human. We have to learn some particular way. But in early adolescence, which is to say after puberty, um, it's our time to construct our own way of being in the world. It's sort of like creating our own drama that we're going to star in. Mm -hmm. And um, and this is really important for later development. Um, so um, the two, the, the, the primary developmental task in my model in early adolescence is creating a personal presence that is both authentic to who you are, who, how you understand yourself, and also is accepted by some peer group, at least one peer group, so that you have some sense of belonging. And it's within that peer group that you're constructing this social presence. It's like you're, you're creating a way to be in the world socially that works. Because hmm. um, you're gonna have to do that later in life again, at least once um, after you're initiated, but with a different purpose that we'll get to later. Okay, so um, that might sound easy enough, creating that task of creating an authentic, socially accepted personal presence, but it's extraordinarily difficult in the contemporary world because of um, all kinds of 
cultural problems, including that we don't have many true adults and elders. Mm -hmm. So, um, <clears throat> um, but before I move on, let me say that um, adolescence itself, as far as we can tell, is a relatively new stage of human development. The word itself was coined in, I think, 1900. And, um, but maybe it's been that, you know, everything is constantly evolving on mm -hmm. planet earth, including the human species. And it seems that one of the ways um, we're differentiated from other um, primates is that we have a longer juvenile, juvenility um, time. And um, which, presumably provides us with an evolutionary advantage. And so adolescence might be it. So I just want to say briefly now, because there's so much, um, so much we could go into here, but um, that the development of the human imagination might be something that we can reach greater levels of through this relatively new stage of development called adolescence. It's, it's our, it's our the evolutionary arrow tip of the human species. Um, but we're not um, we're not realizing it or taking advantage of it or succeeding at it very well. We're just starting to get to understand it. And so for most contemporary people, we think of early adolescence in particular in the conventional sense of our te early teen years or our teen years more generally as a difficult time, especially for parents and teachers and so on. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, I believe it's only because we don't know how to be in a relationship to it well. So your question is, well, how does the journey of soul initiation address this? Mm -hmm. um, probably the first thing to say is that the journey of soul initiation doesn't begin and cannot begin until the next stage, which I call late adolescence. And the um, earth archetype I use as an image for late adolescence is the cocoon. Mm -hmm. Um, not the cocoon in the sense of a cozy place, but the cocoon like as in caterpillar and or butterfly and moth species where um, you die to your early adolescent form, which is the caterpillar form, and you go through this uh, radical transformation um, into an, the adult form, which in those species, it's a moth or a butterfly. In humans, it's an adult uh, human. Mm -hmm. So the journey of soul initiation is that spiritual adventure, which is many years long. Um, if we reach it, if it even assuming it begins at all. And um, it results in, um, you know, a better way, maybe a better image than an adult human or initiated human, because we don't really, most people in our culture, we don't really know what that is. Um, I use the phrase a visionary artisan of cultural evolution. A visionary artisan of cultural evolution. That's, That's my understanding of what an adult does. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. And so um, in a simple sense, you're saying something like, you have to leave early adolescence, enter the stage of late adolescence, which is like being wrapped in a cocoon that rearranges and transforms and undoes and gives birth to something new. And that something new is in fact an adult, a visionary artisan of cultural change, if I said that right, um, who is 
about what kind of work in the world? What, what, what kind of work does this adult do in the world? Who, who is this adult butterfly human? Who are they serving? Yeah, good question. Um, let me back up first and say that we don't, I want to make sure it's clear that we don't choose to leave early adolescence and enter late adolescence. It's something that we achieve by succeeding at the developmental tasks of early adolescence. And it's not even the true adults or the elders in our community that, that pronounce us ready to move to the, the cocoon. It's, um, I like to say it's mystery. It's the, um, the sacred presence or essence of the world that moves us, moves us from one stage to the other. And that, that life passage from early adolescence to late adolescence, I call confirmation. And it's like mystery is confirming, hey, you have succeeded at creating a social presence that's authentic and accepted. And, um, and now everything you've learned about who you are and what the world is, forget about it. In a certain sense, it's now wrong. Mm. And that you're going to go into this initiation process of a number of years in which you're going to discover who you really are. And then after you discover who you really are, then you're going to create a second conscious um, social presence for the purpose of serving the world. Mm. Uh, or another way to say that, for the purpose of em embodying your soul, who you truly are in the world. Yeah. Um, so, yep, did you want to ask something there? Well, I just, it just... Uh just occurred to me as a, as a question, um, if mystery is the agent at work and is the one putting this kind of pressure on who we think we are, um, Maul, how come more people aren't entering through this passage of soul initiation? Uh, what, why is it that human beings seem to, maybe to quote David White, to, to refuse their own flowering? Yeah, um, it's like we can imagine that mystery doesn't want us to fail. And if we are moved to the next stage before we're ready, it's, it's just going to be a disaster. Um, and it's interesting because as far as we know, all other species, at least most of them, maybe all of them, uh, the individuals of other species move through their various stages of development and um, there's not a need for a, a social, socially created um, cauldron or change place or cocoon um, to get people into the adult stage. It's, it's like biologically supported all the way through. For us humans, it seems that we are biologi biologically supported to get to early adolescence. And that's about it. And one way we evolved as humans is we developed in cultures, the healthier cultures that created these social structures, these processes, these initiation processes to get us from adolescence to adulthood. And if we lose those initiation processes, then we get stuck in early adolescence. So um, it's like, um, what's that saying that, um, 
trust in Allah, but tether your camel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, and I know that has a particular meaning for you, but, um, and your listeners probably know too, but it's funny that the muse suggests that image yeah. <laughs> for me, which I don't think I've used before in relationship to this work. But so like you're trusting in mystery to move you to the next stage when you're ready, but you've got to do the work to, mm. you've got to do your part mm. of getting ready uh, to be ready to flower. Mm. Um, and it's the true adults and the elders who are helping the children and the adolescents to, to do that. We don't have those initiation processes. We we get stuck. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, some terrain I'd like to wander into now has to do with um, the journey of soul initiation and the descent to soul, which you make a distinction in the book. And really, the the book is about the descent to soul. It is the detailed description. Um, and if I think I might even add at this point. Um, it's the book with the most number of stories in it. It's it's almost a book that's saying, well, okay, here's the map and the model. Um, does it work? Well, let me tell you a bunch of stories as that that um, speak to this. Um, that in and of itself, I think. I mean, just to just to promote the book, you should read the book, and you'll really like the stories. <laughs> and that's what I'll say. Um, it gets it out of just. I don't know, a kind of a thinking theoretical map kind of kind of book. So um, anyway, so I'd like to make I'd like you to try to make a distinction, uh, even though this is what you did in the book, between the journey of soul initiation and the descent to soul. But maybe before you do that, I want to ask something about the relationship between the journey of soul initiation and myths the hero's journey, um, women who run with the wolves, um, initiatory stories about becoming an adult. Just so what's the relationship between the journey of soul initiation and the great stories and archetypes and and maps that um, have come down to us? And then maybe uh, transition to Descent to Soul, which I'll say is seems to be a unique contribution and unlike um, the hero's journey, for example. So it's kind of a long-winded question. Yeah. Um, nice, nice breeze there, though. Um, so I'm not a mythologist, but I've read a lot of mythology. And um, one of my many radical conclusions is that a lot of mythology has been misunderstood by contemporary Western people because we don't have the the maps, the frame to frames to really understand what's going on in these myths. So when I look at um, myths such as uh, Anana or um, Beowulf or Persephone to um, pick three from three different traditions, um, to me, yes, they are consistent with revealing the kind of patterns that um, we find in our work at Animus in uh, guiding uh, the initiation process. <clears throat> but um, <clears throat> if you don't see those patterns or you don't have the, uh, the uh, kind of framework that we have in terms of what a true adult or elder is, then we will misinterpret myths. We, we won't understand the fullness of what's, what's there. So um, 
um, in a sense, an important sense, the our maps at Animus are not theories that came out of just sitting around thinking about things. <laughs> um, we actually have uh, 40 years of experience guiding uh, programs with the intention of what we call soul encounter. And it was through these 40 years and, and continuing um, that we've noticed the patterns of real people going through these kinds of initiation processes. And we've also, and we've seen the similarity between the patterns that people were guiding and the patterns we see in stories of people that we've never even met, um, but uh, are, are well known in the literature or we have met after their initiation. So for example, um, Carl Jung's initiation process which was about 18 years. That's much longer than it would be in a healthy culture. <clears throat> Jung's um, initiation process um, fits the same patterns. And um, a colleague and friend of mine, Joanna Macy's, Macy, uh, of course, um, probably most listeners know who she is, um, one of our true earth elders, mm -hmm. um, activist and and environmental and social justice causes and a student of Buddhism, <clears throat> an eco-philosopher. Um, her initiation process also fits these, these patterns. Um, and if I'm remembering correctly, Kent, you've asked about uh, the descent to soul and- Yeah, so, yeah. and just to, so I do hear that there in conversation, the, the way you're describing the journey of soul initiation is in, is in conversation with the, with, the great myths may be properly understood, we, we could add. And there, there seems to be a kind of resonance between um, the old way of talking about becoming an adult, an initiated person, and your work, and Carl Jung, and Joanna Macy. But um, also within your 40 years of experience, you begin to sort of uh, see a different way of describing what's happening in the journey of soul initiation, namely the descent to soul. So maybe just like, um, what do you mean? What What is this descent to soul as part of the larger pattern of the journey of soul initiation? What is this unique um, uh, image that, that you're trying to bring forth in the world? Or I shouldn't say you're trying to bring forth in the world. You're trying to name it as a reality, um, as a process, something like that. Yeah. Um, let me back up just a bit first and say, um, I gave example of examples of, um, you know, there are these frames that we have and we tend to um, try to understand new things with old frames. Um, so for example, something that's become very familiar to people working in human development over the last 40 years or so is um, the idea of rites of passage. Mm -hmm. So when people are familiar with that frame of rites of passage and they look at what we're doing in Animus, they say to themselves and others, oh, they're doing rites of passage. And in fact, that's not what we're doing at all, almost never. Um, so that's, that's an ex example of um, a pattern that doesn't fit the journey of soul initiation. Yeah. Another example you mentioned yourself is Joseph Campbell's reading of world mythologies and saying, well, they all fit this pattern of the hero's journey. Mm -hmm. And so people familiar with the hero's journey, look at what we're doing in Animus, 
and say, oh, they're guiding contemporary versions of the hero's journey. But we're not. This is not the hero's journey at all. Uh, Campbell was um, tracking something very different. And maybe he misread mythology, which is, you know, probably a um, sacrilegious thing to, to say in <laughs> circles. That it, there's a lot of things he missed. Um, and so, for example, writes a passage based on the work of Arnold van Genep uh, in the early 20th century, have three phases uh, and the hero's journey as uh, understood by Campbell has also three uh, phases similar to rites of passage, but not quite the same. Um, whereas the descent to soul, as we've mapped it, has five phases and they're not, they don't correspond to the phases of, of a rite of passage or a hero's journey. So um, I should say at this point that the descent to soul is the, is the core or central spiritual odyssey that's part of the journey of soul initiation. The, the journey is essentially the entire stage of life that corresponds to late adolescence that I call the cocoon. And within the cocoon, there's one or more descents to soul. There has to be at least one, but there could be several. <clears throat> and after the journey of soul initiation, after we're soul initiated and have entered true adulthood, we can still have additional descents to soul. So the descent to soul is not only different from the journey of soul initiation, but it can happen both during it and after it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the descent to soul, I, I use two analogies to help people understand it. And one is um, like topographical. It's the um, image of soul Canyon. So um, think in terms of a big Canyon, like the grand Canyon that has these share walls. And if you're going to try to cross it, um, you're going to be traveling towards it, like on a relatively flat table land. <clears throat> and then you're going to get to the edge of this um, canyon. You're going to look down, you're going to gaze down and, and um, maybe have some vertigo and, and, and say to yourself, oh my God, I'm being called to go down there. It'll kill me, which is exactly correct. It'll kill you psycho-spiritually. Um, and if you're unfortunate, it might you might not um, survive it physically, but that I'll, I wanna say now, it's a plug for Animus Valley Institute. We've never lost anybody yet <laughs> physically, um, but it is a it's dangerous um, um, undertaking. Okay, so the first phase is that coming towards the canyon. The second phase is, is um, the descent, literal descent into the canyon. That phase I call dissolution. The first phase I call preparation. Dissolution is going down into the canyon. At the bottom of the canyon is the experience of soul encounter, which is the glimpse of our soul, a glimpse of our soul. And I should pause here to define soul because again, another radical idea mm -hmm. um, in our work is um, we understand soul to be an ecological concept, not a psychological one, not a spiritual one, not a religious one. Um, and that perhaps the reason we've had a hard time as a culture understanding soul and being in relationship to it is because we've tried to make it into something psychological, mm -hmm. spiritual, or religious. Mm -hmm. um, but it's actually ecological, and 
at least it is for me. And what I mean by soul is a thing's unique ecological niche. Hmm. I say thing because everything on the planet, at least, um, has its as a soul in that sense. It's so I'm not using soul as an object mm-hmm. or a process, but as a relationship or a set of relationships, namely a niche. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a much better way to understand what soul is. Um, so for us humans, when we discover something about our soul, we're discovering the place or the niche we were born to inhabit or to occupy and to embody in our lifetime. And another way of saying that, that each of us is born for a gift, not just to the human village, but a gift for um, the greater earth community. That we're, in a sense, essentially I'm saying that we are like everything else on earth, that we have an ecological role. And we have, uh, there's a way that we are um, evolved as a species and uh, created as individuals to serve the more than human community. So we get a glimpse on a, on, a, on a descent to soul, if it goes well, we get a glimpse of what our place is, not our social role or our job or our career or our particular creative project in our lifetime, but what is our ecological niches. But when we have a soul encounter, we don't literally like get a readout of an ecological niche. Um, what we get is a metaphor. We get, we have some experience that shows us and t- or tells us, informs us what our place is metaphorically. Mm-hmm. Um, and we call, at Animus, we call that uh, our mythopoetic identity. So our mythopoetic identity is, is a symbol or an archetype or an image or a pattern that tells us what unique place in the larger earth community we have. So for example, on my first um, vision fast, my, which is when I had my first soul encounter, um, I essentially was shown that what my gift to the world is, what my place in the world is, is to weave cocoons of transformation mm. or to help other people to weave their own cocoons of transformation. So that image of cocoon weaving is what I was given. And I was literally told that by, in, in my case, it was a butterfly that literally literally told me that after four days of fasting alone on the mountain, mm-hmm. um, I was able to hear others other than humans speak. And of course, my psyche translated it into English for me. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's, I was a pause there to say, what's that third stage at the bottom of the canyon is soul encounter, and it's a it's it's a glimpse of mythopoetic identity, and there's several forms that that take for different people. We could maybe talk about that later if you'd like. But the fourth phase is going up the canyon wall on the other side of the canyon, and I call that metamorphosis. And that's when our human ego is actually being shape shifted from an adolescent ego to an adult ego. Um, and that, um, that's the, the phase that we at Animus were not quite clear about. I wasn't clear about that until maybe the last six or seven years and 
realized we hadn't put enough emphasis into practices and support of people that after they have their soul encounter, then the work of metamorphosis begins when the ego is actually shape-shifted by the, the vision or the revelation. And um, okay, the final phase is when you get to the top on the other side of the canyon and then you're walking on relatively flat land. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> um, back to your people, to your village. <clears throat> um, second. Yeah. And we call that, that final phase enactment. 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 Mm -hmm. Okay. So, um, yeah. In some ways, both the cocoon image and the canyon image are relatively easy to understand, but even it, 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 easy to see. I mean, you can see it, you can visualize it. You can say, oh yeah, that makes sense. If I want to get to the other side, I have to descend down in here and I've got to go through some kind of process and I got to cross the river at the bottom and I have to go back up the other side and carry on about my, my business. Um, and uh, so, I, I mean, there are a number of threads that I, that are curious uh, to me. Um, the first is kind of um, maybe a bit hard to, to describe, uh, which is up at the initial rim of the canyon. Here we are at the initial rim of the canyon. Maybe you've had some preparation. You can maybe say more if you want about what you mean by preparation. Um, but that first sort of dip into the canyon, what is it that, that causes, makes that transition, that, that passage into this phase of, of uh, disillusion? Um, and why is it that so, I mean, if we just take what you said at the beginning, which is we don't have many adults, period. So this resistance that, um, seems to be a part of the culture. Maybe can you speak to that? Um, what is it that that is pulling us toward, and what is it that that um, what is it that that is in us that resists that tension between the two? Am I making sense? I think so. Yeah, we resist because we start feeling our entire life is falling apart, our social life, our psychological life, our vocational life. Um, we're, we're heading into total unknown. And uh, we, you know, we had figured out life pretty well through early adolescence. Again, if, you're, if a descent is starting to happen, you're now in late adolescence, but um, before your first descent, you still have kind of a, you still really have an early adolescent identity, a sense of who you are in relationship to other people. Uh, and a career and so forth, maybe religious faith. Um, so we, we naturally resisted. Who wouldn't resist that? Everything you've worked for is now jeopardized. Mm. Um, and another way to answer your question is to say that two of the things that are happening for a person at the beginning of dissolution, as they looking over that rim, or maybe they're even beginning to fall, into the canyon um, is what we call, um, and other people have called the crisis and the call. Mm -hmm. This is a pattern that I've seen in 
for every person who've gone who's gone on the descent, um, including, for example, Carl Jung and Joanna Macy and William Butler Yeats and others that I speak about in the book. Um, so the crisis is what I was really just alluding to is this crisis of identity starting to crumble, to fall apart. In, in some traditions, it's called dismemberment. That it's like we're, we're being torn apart. We might even feel physically we're being torn apart. Um, and that loosens up our identity. Um, it, you might say it enables the fall into the canyon, but there's something else that has to happen and that's the call. And that's, and it's, it's the way we overcome our resistance. The call is the call from soul. Uh, Joseph Campbell referred to something very similar to what I mean as the call to spiritual adventure. Um, but for me, it's kind of like a, it's like a, like falling in love. It's a romantic thing. It's an, it's eros. It's um, this deep, um, soul-oriented eros. That we're being called. It's like our, our lover is calling us in a way um, that a human lover never has. It's something deeper, even deeper than that. There's we're being called to this great mystery that's at the core of life in general and the core of our individual life. It's as if there's something at the bottom of the canyon that's singing to us. And we hear that song and we've never heard a song so um, enticing um, and consciousness shifting before. And we're willing to risk everything to say yes uh, to that call. And that's what overcomes the resistance. The second thing that overcomes the resistance is the fact that our life is falling at the crisis. Our life is falling apart anyways. Um, and if it wasn't for the crisis, we probably wouldn't hear the call. And if it wasn't for the call, we'd probably be able to resist the crisis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Lovely. So much of what you're saying just rings true in my, my own life, just in terms of when I was um, a megachurch pastor and just the feeling of my life is falling apart. I'm about to, well, I would have said at the time, I, um, I'm afraid I'm going to fuck up everything in my life. Or the feeling was more like everything is already fucked up and I can't put the pieces back together. I can't, maybe I Maybe I could have with a valiant effort, but what at least helped pull me further was a kind of, like what you're describing, a kind of alluring possibility. Like, yeah, but what if you just, I surrendered and continued and wandered, even if you're, you're totally unsure, which I was, of what, what I might find. It's not like there was um, some sort of prize dangled out there for me like oh if i just like if i go through these steps i'm going to get the prize it was more the feeling of i could be wandering in in into a kind of abyss but there was something attractive about that that kept me from calling every friend and therapist i knew to help me kind of rearrange my life and keep it intact mm -hmm. yeah so yeah um i'd love to uh because what you're saying, of course, as you said before, uh, is quite radical about your definition of soul as a kind of ecological niche. 
and what you meant by mythopoetic identity. Um, I mean, why is it that, and maybe this isn't even the way you would put, but why is it that the soul or the mystery speaks to us in, in a kind of mythic way upon these sorts of encounters? Why is it a mythopoetic identity and not just like, um, like a like a, a title or a, a a job description or something like that? Yeah, well, think about it. If we're born with a, a unique ecological niche, if we were born to take a particular place in the world, think about that for a second. It it isn't cultural. It's you. You can't be born to take a, for a particular job or a particular social role. Because among other things, you could be born to um, to parents from one culture and then be adopted into a completely foreign culture. I mean, if it's if the soul is ecological, it is pre-linguistic and pre-cultural. And so the soul can never be defined by a social role within any particular culture or a job, which is, you know, jobs are cultural, are defined in a cultural context. So um, I think that's it's simply that. It's, it's really who we're born to be. Like everything else on the planet, everything is born for to take a particular um, ecological niche and to serve the world in a certain way. I might expand on that briefly to say that um, each each thing on the planet is designed not to simply be life-sustaining, but life-enhancing. Everything on the planet is designed to be life-enhancing. And as far as we know, we humans are the only species that have failed at that and are doing the exact opposite right now. The dominator cultures anyways, which are most of them on the planet now, are destroying life as we know. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering, I'm, I'm just thinking about, about some of my listeners and also the, the people that I, I interact with. I, there's something to be said about the feeling of being homeless or out of place might be the, the better way to say it, out of place. And I think more and more people are feeling like, mm, something about my life is out of place. And I'm not sure what it is. And I feel like I need something. And there are all kinds of options like, well, maybe I need a retreat or maybe I need a new therapist or maybe I need um, a new job. Um, maybe I need a new partner, in fact. I mean, probably I married the wrong person, that sort of thing. So um, if, you, if you could speak to that kind of existential um, awareness and how, how could one begin to say yes to the journey of soul initiation versus the all, all kinds of uh, culturally relevant and interesting options for <laughs> dangled out in front of us for when we feel that kind of like, uh, I don't know if I, if I belong in my own life. Have I made sense? You have, once again. 
Well, first, there's an early adolescent version of this. And it's different from the late adolescent version. The early adolescent version is, um, I don't know, it's, it feels like the, the script I'm following, the role I'm playing isn't really mine. Mm. And that's, that's a really common problem in early adolescence in our egocentric cultures, our dominator cultures, that people have a hard time finding their true authenticity, their true values, that, what they really stand for. Um, their true style, because there's, our culture is so conformity-oriented, is conforming and rebelling. We're conforming with the in-crowd and rebelling against the others. Um, and that's, that's a pathological variety of early adolescence, and that's what most people are doing. So what some people would call an existential dilemma is actually just an early adolescent identity crisis. Mm. Um, and most people solve it inauthentically by simply conforming to a different social role and peer, peer group or relationship. Yep. Like time to switch churches or religions or political parties or affiliations or neighborhoods, something like that. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Uh, but to solve it in a healthy way, um, what most people need to do when they're in early adolescence is really explore deeply who they are. Um, and then f- create a version of that that works in at least one peer group. Um, but I know you're, Kent, you're alluding to um, more of the late adolescent version. <clears throat> this existential dilemma. Um, and it's, and that's for people in the cocoon who've made it to the cocoon, who've gone through confirmation and are feeling called on this very different journey um, because in this journey, in late adolescence, we're not going to switch from one, for, we're not, our identity is not going to shift from one social or vocational role or a religious one to another set of those. That we're leaving behind in the cocoon, we're going to leave behind forever any social, religious, or vocational way of understanding ourselves. It's mm-hmm. very, very different. And so few people have even a frame for understanding what that is, that what happens most typically for people without an understanding of these things and without a guide, um, when, if they do get into into the cocoon and then the crisis and call happens and they're about to start tumbling into the canyon, um, what very commonly happens is what you um, noted yourself, Kent, that they will take themselves to a psychotherapist or a, um, a pastor or a psychiatrist or a life coach um, and say, you know, my life's falling apart. And most of the people in those professional therapeutic um, roles will um, actually attempt to rescue that person from the descent, from their, from the depths mm-hmm. that they're, um, Descent to soul would be aborted. <clears throat> it happens very commonly. Um, so, what I'm doing in this book, in in essence, is to um, create or provide a framework for understanding when these things start happening to you. If they do, this is what's going on. It's not an early adolescent crisis. It's something else, and you 
um, you're being called by mystery into this journey and here's what the journey looks like and here's ways you can facilitate it. Mm-hmm. And here are the warning signs and cautions and what to do if you run into this kind of trouble or another kind of trouble. Mm-hmm. So one of the distinctions that I use the um, moth and butterfly uh, analogy to help people understand is the difference between a major um, transformation that happens within adolescence and then as in contrast to what happens in the cocoon. So if you if we use the, the butterfly or moth analogy, caterpillars, which are the adolescent, the early adolescent, they go through profound changes in their lives, caterpillars do, in which they shed their skin and grow a larger skin. A lot of people don't know that that's true about caterpillars. They go through this, biologists call it molting, mm-hmm. kind of like a snake losing its skin, growing another one. Well, caterpillars do as well. And what that corresponds to in the human, early adolescent, is leaving one romantic relationship or a job or a social circle or a religion or a church and so forth and moving to another one. It's a profound change. Mm-hmm. Some people might even misunderstand and think that they had it, it, that a soul encounter was involved there, but it wasn't. It's you're a caterpillar on one end, one side of that passage and a caterpillar on the other side. Mm-hmm. But when the caterpillar um, has reached the end of its series of moltings, it finds itself doing this mysterious thing of, if it's a moth caterpillar, of weaving a cocoon for itself. If it's a butterfly caterpillar, its own body uh, morphs into something like a cocoon, which biologists call a chrysalis. Mm-hmm. And what happens there, the dissolution of the caterpillar body and the forming of a butterfly body, that's a very different transformation than a small caterpillar to a larger caterpillar. Um, so, um, and analogously in humans, when we are in the cocoon stage, where it's the end of our caterpillar life or any version of caterpillar life, and we're going to become a very different um, being, but it's not physically that we change so much, if at all, it's the ego. It's this unique aspect of the human psyche, the human ego that shapeshifts mm-hmm. in the cocoon. Yeah, maybe say more about that. Um, as with almost everything in this book, the way you use <laughs> the way you use words and terms that are, have become familiar is quite unique. And you mean something uh, very different by many of these things. So just quickly, just a word on ego. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, in many spiritual circles, um, let me just adjust my mic here a little bit. Yep. Yeah, in, in many spiritual circles, um, we talk about the ego as the problem. Like, we've got to get rid of it. Yeah. Um, and uh, I mean ego very differently. I mean it very simply as the part of us that is conscious of ourself. Again, as far as you know, that might be unique to us humans, that we have this conscious self-awareness. Um, and we can't be human without it. It's, it defines our humanity. Mm-hmm. 
what is both our burden and our um, greatest gift as a species is this ability to be conscious of ourselves. Um, so from this perspective, the, the problem for us humans is not that we have egos, but that we have immature egos. And the goal is not to get rid of the ego, but to mature the ego. Um, and that's, um, that's partly what the preparation for the descent to soul is, is maturing the ego. Um, and the, what happens in the cocoon itself is another kind of maturation that moves us from an adolescent ego to an adult ego. So, Kent, did I answer that question? Yeah, I mean, just in the sense of ego as who we think we are, that's my language, or our conscious selves. And that's not the problem you're saying. You're saying an immature uh, expression of the ego, which is convinced that this is all I am, the I, is the thing that gets transformed, shape-shifted, rearranged, dissolved in the chrysalis, the cocoon. And more than that, if we just go to the next phase after soul encounter, the metamorphosis you said earlier is a continuation of the ways in which who I think I am in the world continues to be shaped by mystery and by soul encounter and um, um, as a kind of uh, a continue, continuation of the evolution that's happening. Am I right? Yes, you're right. And a, um, an early adolescent ego is an agent for itself. Mm. And an adult ego is an agent for soul, which is to say an agent for the world. Mm -hmm. yeah. And the way we serve the world is the, um, is the source of our deepest fulfillment. Mm -hmm. yeah. So um, sometimes I, I feel I need to be careful when I'm talking about my work, because one way to define it, the journey of soul initiation is that it is um, the spiritual adventure that leads to true or initiated adulthood. But that word adult and adulthood are, they're troubling words for a lot of people that we often think of Peter Pan, I do, and how he rejected adulthood mm -hmm. because he looked around himself and looked really dull. And when, when we, especially when we're teenagers, we look around at our parents and other adults, most of them, maybe all of them, but at least most of them, we say to ourselves, wow, is that really what it's all about? I mean, that's the best I can hope for. Are you serious? I'm with Peter Pan. I'm going to Never Neverland. Mm -hmm. um, but that's all because we don't understand in our culture what adulthood is. That true adulthood is a, a, a very... Um, uh, it's it's an adventure. It's um, it's mysterious. It's it's thrilling. It's challenging. It's really difficult. It's always unfolding and developing. Um, it's an embrace of the world as a mystical place, and that we have um, been somehow miraculously born into this world, which itself is um, an absolute wonderland. And that we have a gift that nobody else has for this world. And offering this gift is, is the source of our greatest joy and fulfillment. That's not the image or picture of adulthood we have in our contemporary Western cultures. Mm -hmm. um, but it's what true adulthood is about. 
Yeah. Much, much less old age. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. We've been talking about an hour, so I got maybe just a couple more questions. Okay. Um, the first is let's, let's just say something in your words um, and in the images that you've been using and the kind of um, song you've been singing over the last hour, let's say um, someone's listening and it's the sort of feeling is, hmm, this is, I'm a little scared if what Bill Plotkin is saying is true. I'm a little scared. And also another part of me says, yep, this, uh, they, they feel a bit of the tug. Um, the simple question is where to begin? I keep coming back to this, this place of beginning this kind of journey, because if, if it's true what you're saying, most people have a hard time just even beginning, much less any of the other elements of the phases of Descent to Soul, for example. So, I mean, what would you say? Where, where does someone begin if they start to feel the, the kind of tug of mystery toward the rim of the canyon? Well, you could um, begin with that, the preparation phase um, because so few of us are, are psychologically prepared or even physically prepared for the journey of soul initiation. This is unlike um, healthy nature-based cultures where your entire life up to that point was a type of preparation. And maybe there's some specialized preparation in the few weeks or months before you descend. But um, in some ways in the contemporary world, our life before the descent was not only not a preparation, it was an obstacle to, um, to the descent. So one place to start is um, in preparation. And in my book, Wild Mind, that's not the primary reason I wrote that book, but it, for people who are feeling the tug to the depths, Wild Mind would be the book to get. I actually, in some ways, summarized Wild Mind in one of the early chapters mm -hmm. of um, the new book. Um, but what the Wild Mind work is about is um, cultivating our four innate facets of wholeness. These are four sets of capacities that every human being is born to. They're more or less the same in every person. Um, and our contemporary family patterns and educational systems and religious systems all either ignore all four facets of wholeness or they actually suppress them and get in the way of developing them. But they're inside of us. We're born with them. And with a, you know, like a seed, if we water them, they, develop, they can develop very quickly. It doesn't have to take you know, 10, 20 years. It can, a year of focused development can go quite a long way. Um, and as with all the maps I use, uh, I use nature-based um, templates for them. With the um, map of our wholeness, I use the um, nature's cycles, in particular, um, the four, the cardinal directions, mm -hmm. or the four times of day, or the four seasons, uh, which all basically are the same template. 
-hmm. and uh, map these four. I'll just name the four. There's the nurturing generative adult in the north, the innocent sage in the east, the wild indigenous one in the south, and the dark muse beloved in the west. Those are just names, and it might give your listeners um, a little bit of a feeling for these four facets of human wholeness. Um, but they're described and with stories in great detail in Wild Mind. Mm -hmm. um, so cultivating these four facets um, are a really important part of preparation. Um, if you if you look at that material and you feel like, yeah, I've done pretty well at cultivating these four facets, relatively unusual for most people. I mean, most people are born with one facet as relatively easy to develop and the other three is more challenging and one of them in particular really challenging and which one depends on who you are. It varies quite a bit. Carl Jung made a similar point about developing our wholeness. Um, but if you feel you have developed it that pretty well, then um, you'd want to find some kind of guide um, that can help you in this process. It always goes better if you have a guide who knows the terrain somewhat. Obviously at Animus, um, we have guides of that sort. You may be able to find some elsewhere, but um, what I've discovered to my surprise and chagrin over these 40 years is not, there's not many people who, are, who have this same kind of map of the descent, uh, not even really a version of it, but there's, there's maybe some similarities we find in some places. Um, and if you don't can't find a human guide, you have inner guides. Everybody does. That's part of the way our psyches are, are made. And accessing our inner guides requires, among other things, that we have a well-developed West facet of wholeness. That's the dark muse beloved. Um, the muse itself is a type of guide. So in Carl Jung's case, he had no idea what was going on for him when he got to the edge of the canyon. He had a lot of preparation work to do that he had to do before he could descend um, successfully. And he had no guides, no map. He had a companion, Tony Wolf, but she herself hadn't been on the journey. But Jung had these inner, he, he had a, a fabulously developed West facet, his dark muse beloved, um, a, a, a huge capacity of deep imagination. And so he was able to go through his imagination, which he called active imagination, and go on these journeys. And his famous red book is basically his journal of 33 or so uh, deep imagery journeys, most of which, maybe all of which had a guide, an inner guide. Like at first the guide was Elijah, these two characters from the Bible, Elijah and Salome, and also the serpent. Turns out to be one of his most important guides. And later he meets uh, a kind of a version of Elijah named Philemon. And even after that, another one named Ka. Um, so I'm saying that all of us humans, we have inner guides, but we might have to do some preparatory work to be able to use our imagination to access them. And last I'll mention in answer to your question is this new book, The Journey of Soul Initiation is, is um, obviously something I'd recommend to someone who's feeling that, that tug, that pull, that call from the depths. Yeah. 
Maybe just a word on why you called it a field guide. Maybe I should read the whole title. The Journey of Soul Initiation, a field guide for visionaries, evolutionaries, and revolutionaries. What do you mean by field guide? Yeah, it's um, something that you that can accompany you um, on the journey. And it's something that was developed, as I noted earlier, over 40 years of doing our best to jettison all of the models that we had ever heard about that that had been speaking for myself had been very useful to me, like uh, the rites of passage model, Joseph Campbell's model, um, the models of Carl Jung and James Hillman and many others um, that we, I did my best to put them aside and say, we're going to do our best to guide people through this journey and we're going to pay attention the best we can to what actually happens for them. And we're going to keep asking ourselves, what are we missing? What is our model missing? What are the kind of distinctions they're telling us through their experiences and their words? And um, this book is the combination of those 40 years of listening really carefully to the experiences, both the people we guided and those we have records of, like Carl Jung and Joanna Macy, um, and not trying to squeeze or shove people's experiences into some model that we think ought to be the one that should describe their experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay, I, this is my final question. Um, what's the relationship between um, individual transformation, which is really what, at least my understanding of what this book is addressing. The field guide is for the individual. What's the relationship between individual transformation? You can correct me if I'm wrong. And, and, and larger cultural needed uh, change or potential transformation. Um, is it, are we in a place where we need to choose one over the other? Um, is it, is it a danger to go deeply into um, individual transformation and, and avoid sort of systemic cultural uh, changes or should we go in that direction? There, there, there seems to be a kind of conversation that, that happens around these two poles, individual and larger cultural transformation. That I wonder if you could just speak to as kind of a final uh, question here. Yeah, each kind of transformation supports the other. Um, the, you know, the, the core mission of, of our institute, Animus Valley Institute, is cultural transformation. That's why we're doing the work. Um, people who go through the journey of soul initiation become true adults, or as I named them before, visionary artisans of cultural evolution. But in a culture like ours, which is um, psycho-spiritually challenged, to say the least, um, a true adult is also a visionary artisan of cultural revolution. Um, That whatever an initiated adult does, whether they want it to be true or not, will be subversive to our contemporary culture because our contemporary cultures are um, very unhealthy and, as I say, life-destroying. So um, the deepest cultural change comes through the work of true adults and elders. 
And given that the journey of soul initiation results in true adults who later, if they live long enough, become true elders, um, individual, so when I say individual transformation of this sort serves in the deepest way, cultural transformation. Um, on the other hand, we people of this planet need to make some urgent changes, um, essential changes, cultural, societal, environmental, etc. changes. And we need to do it more quickly than we than would happen just through the journey of soul initiation. It's mm. uh, the soul initiation is fundamental to cultural change and the growing of true healthy cultures, but it's not the only thing that's necessary. And and the more urgent needs right now, as most people know, are um, are change in our relationship to the environment to to be addressing this the sixth mass extinction which is even a bigger problem than climate disruption and um, to be addressing uh, all the social and racial injustices and political reforms and you know in this country a lot of people are celebrating that we have a new administration that is psychologically clearly healthier than the prior one but there's still enormous problems and flaws in our uh, US democracy and so on. So these kind of changes need to happen. If we just look psychologically, um, the uh, transformation in humans that's even more urgent than what comes through the journey of soul initiation is what I call ecological awakening, uh, or for short, eco-awakening. And that I'm referring to a person's first somatic experience of being as natural and as wild as anything else on the planet, as, as having uh, a, a deeply rooted kinship with all other species and habitats and so forth. And um, those who've studied ecology at all have that intellectual understanding, but it's surprising how relatively few people have actually had the experience of their own animate nature, their, their themselves as a human animal, this ecological awakening. And it profoundly, it's a profound change for people. It's a type of caterpillar molting, but it's an absolutely essential one. And if we had anywhere close to half of humans on this planet who experience themselves every day as being in a sacred relationship with all other species and places, habitats on the planet, we'd have a, a very different world. And that shift could happen relatively soon and needs to. And there's many, many groups and organizations working toward this. Sometimes it's called a nature connection. Um, absolutely essential. The journey of soul initiation is not as urgent. It just goes much deeper. Mm. And eco-awakening by itself doesn't result in true adults, but the journey of soul initiation does. Eco-awakening is a uh, foundational experience before we enter the, the cocoon. Yeah. Um, I guess let's, um, let's land the plane here. I, I, I want to say, first of all, thank you for mm -hmm. writing this book. Thank you for being a guide and teacher in my own life and a kind of troublemaker in 
I mean that in the best possible ways. My pleasure. <laughs> um, and thanks for taking the time just to talk through some of this stuff. Um, it's the book you should definitely buy and it's long and it's worth your time. And it's the kind of book that um, you're not reading for information. That's the, that's, that's my feeling. It's like exploring an, a land, like a landscape. And, and I think it can and should be read sort of slowly um, and let the relationship between uh, who you think you are and the mystery, um, you know, let that tension build. Um, so I guess, I mean, I guess to, to keep it formal, anything you want to say here in closing? Um, I know people can go to animus.org uh, and find out all about um, the many great programs that, that you and your colleagues are offering. And, and of course, you can find the book in all kinds of places now. Any sort of, um, uh, you know, final, final words? Uh, the one thing that's coming to mind, Kent, is to say that um, I know for a lot of people, what I'm talking about will be news, maybe somewhat foreign. Um, and it might be, you might have these inner protectors who are saying, whoa, this would, this would be too much to, to chew, uh, to bite off. And um, this would take forever or even someone like me could never do this. And I want to assure you that you were born as a being that everything about you, your body, your psyche, everything is designed to go through this journey, that the inner structures are already there and the outer structures of the world are there to support you. And you have uh, somebody on your side, which is your soul, is our mysteries there to support you in this. And my experience that if when people give themselves to this journey, it's not a, like a lifetime spiritual discipline. It's three, four, five years, something like that. You can get through this journey. You can do your preparation work relatively fast. And the, again, the reason is that your psyche is designed for it. Hmm. It's just our contemporary cultures that are keeping you from it. It's already there waiting inside of you or, and also outside of you in the world. Um, it's, it's challenging, but it, it's probably easier than, than you might be fearing. So. Awesome. 